0: As we look at um, this issue of sadness, I want to just say a few things about emotion generally uh, as we're going to look at that this morning. I want to make a few statements, some of them are a little deep, okay, on a Sunday morning, but hopefully you can travel with me here. Emotion is usually provoked by our horizontal dynamic, in other words, our relationship with other people, but always reflects the vertical dynamic, how we see God. There's always a connection between our emotion that we experience through the relational, through the horizontal, but also how we see uh, our relationship with God. Emotions seem to be one of the least reliable yet most influential forces that guide our lives. I don't know whether you, you're like me. Isn't it true that some days we get up and we feel great, confident and happy, other days, the exact opposite? Is there only me or is there anyone else on the, uh, here that feels like that? Something's like, why is that? That you wake up one day and everything looks great and you feel great. The next day you wake up and you feel awful. What is that about? Emotions, they're so powerful and yet they're so unreliable as well when it comes to guiding us. Emotion can open the door to reality. The problem is with reality. We often prefer to avoid reality, especially if it's painful because we don't want to engage with pain. Emotion propels us into the tragic reality that we are not yet home. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you might think, what are you talking about? I'm home when I go home. We're talking not about our physical home. We're talking about heaven because we actually believe that on earth we're kind of passing through. But ultimately, our home, our destination is heaven. And it's only in heaven when emotion gets its full completion and full sense of fulfillment. So we're not yet home. Emotion opens the door to asking hard questions. And when I wrote that on my iPad, the predictive text, I I looked at what I'd written and what I'd actually written on the predictive text was emotion opens the Doritos. (laughs) Seriously, that's what I'd actually written on predictive text. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's true as well, because sometimes there are emotions that come and you want to open the Doritos, don't you? But actually, what I meant to say was emotion (laughs) opens the door to asking really hard questions. Emotions are the language of the soul the cry that gives the heart a voice. That's a great statement, isn't it? It's not mine. It's too deep for me. Emotions are the language of the soul, the cry that gives the heart a voice. And here's where I want to land this little bit. Emotions can either lead us to engage more with God or they can lead us to move further away from God. My hope and prayer is that this morning you'll choose the former one, not the latter one. That as we look at this emotion of sadness, it causes us to move towards God and not away from God. So I want to look firstly at everyone and sadness. What is sadness? And I want to draw something. As I was thinking and praying about this, I I had this thought and I thought, I think this is what sadness is about. I thought about it, and then I thought I ought to ask some proper people, some people who know what they're doing. So I did a little bit of research on people that research this kind of stuff, and I found out that I was right. So I was really quite pleased about that. That basically, sadness is a continuum. And at the one end of the continuum, this end where we all live, okay, where we all live a lot of the time, you might call it upset. That's what I'm calling it anyway. Anyone ever been upset at any point in their life? And we feel a little bit of sadness, don't we? So at this end of the sadness, so this is the sadness continuum, we feel upset right the way down to the end, which we would call depression. And of course, depression itself is also a continuum because you can get mild, moderate and severe kinds of depression. And at some point in our life, we are all on this continuum somewhere And there'll be some of you this morning that will say, oh, not me. I'm like always upbeat, always optimistic. Nothing ever gets me down. Well, if that's you, bully for you. Okay, fantastic. I'm really glad that's for you. It might not be you forever. It might not be you forever. You may be wired that way, and that's brilliant, but it might not be for you forever. And if you are wired that way, and if it is you forever, have a thought for the rest of us who at some point in our lives find ourselves somewhere on this continuum. And I want to talk just a few minutes, really, about when we end up right at this end of the continuum called depression. There are 350 million people in the world currently suffering from depression. In the UK, one in five people, one in five people in the UK will experience some kind of depression at some point in their life. That's astounding, isn't it? And so for you, many of you in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you think, really, is it that big a thing? That's the continuum of this thing that we're talking about. And and I want to say, how do you know if you've moved down the continuum and you're in that end? How do you know that? Well, there are some signs, okay, and this is very brief and very shallow in one sense, but persistent sadness or low moods is an indicator. An inability to enjoy things that you used to enjoy. A loss of interest in things that you used to be interested in. You find it much harder to make decisions you're not coping with things that you used to cope with quite easily. You're continually exhausted, restless, irritated, agitated. There's a loss of appetite, a loss of sex drive, thoughts of self-harm or even suicide. And when depression hits us, it affects our ability to think, to feel and to act. What causes depression? Well, it can be situational things like something's happened in your life. Sometimes it's not You can't think of something that's happening in your life, but you know that you're down this continuum and you're in this thing called depression. There is some research and some thinking in the medical world that some of it is biochemical. Okay, that there's a biochemical component to this, which brings us to the question, how do we relate to doctors and to medication? And can I say some of you this morning may not be Christians, but if many of you are. And I think, having been in pastoral ministry for getting on to 30 years now, that kind of thing, many Christians struggle with this more than people who aren't Christians for this one reason. Then not only are trying to cope with the feelings of sadness and the feelings of depression, but they're also trying to cope with the feelings of guilt. Because as a Christian, they say, but why am I feeling like this? I'm in touch with the God of the universe, the God of amazing grace, the God who is awesome, the God who, who I worship, the God who I love, the God who, is, who, who has done so much in my life. Why am I feeling so sad? Why am I feeling so down? And then that whole thing, "Now, do I go to the doctor or do I pray? What about if the doctor gives me pills to take? Do I take the pills? And yet I'm a Christian. What does that say about my faith? Anyone understand what I'm talking about? I want to just say, this is my view. This is not the church's view. This is my view, okay? All truth is God's truth. And God is big enough to use lots of different ways to help us. And underneath God's sovereign rule, science and medicine and doctors are fantastic additions to this planet. And I always say to people, if they're suffering from anything like this, have you been to the doctor? Because when you go to the doctor, if the doctor prescribes you medication, take it. Nobody would have any qualms taking medication if it was a physical issue. But for some reason, we have all these kind of contortions in our mind, you know, and conflicts about taking it if it's for something else. All truth is God's truth. And it's not prayer or the doctor. It's prayer and the doctor. Why don't we pray and let the doctor do his thing? And maybe God's going to choose that that track to help you out? Why would we push God back if that's something that God has given to us? I want to try and put that right there on the table. If you've ever found yourself down this end of the continuum and you've not been to the doctor or you've not asked for help, I really encourage you to do it. Let that guilt go. That's not what God wants you to have. What God wants you to have is some help. What God wants you to have is some help and some support and you know, if you've ever felt sadness like this and you've ever felt down that end of the continuum and you felt depression that doesn't seem to go away, I want you to know you are not alone. There are millions of people in the world that feel like you and there are many people in this room that feel like you or have felt like you. And what's more, there are loads of the characters that we read about in the Bible who felt exactly like you too. And so Moses was down this end of the continuum. Jeremiah was, Job was, David was. And maybe my favorite story of all out of these is Elijah, who in the book of one Kings, in the one hand he's on the top of a mountain calling down fire from God. You know, incredible scene. In the next chapter, he's on his own in the desert and he's running away and he's sat under a tree and he says, I want to die. I want to die. How could he go from on the mountaintop to I want to die? That's called depression. And Elijah found it as well. But in his depression and in his sadness, he met with God. And so I want to talk to you about God and sadness. How does God and sadness interact? Let me say a few things. God can use sadness to draw us to him. You see, we tend to go further away or come closer in when it comes to sadness. And I'll come back to that. But as as God tries to draw us near, God also draws near to us in our sadness. One of my favorite verses is where the Bible says in Psalms that God is close to the brokenhearted. And there's something about brokenness and there's something about sadness. And there's something about that low mood and the depression. Almost like God wants to come even more towards people. like that. Now they don't all the time experience that, but that's in the heart of God. He wants to draw close to us in our sadness. The other thing about God and sadness is God can use sadness to help us grow. And I discovered this recently when I I read this book on leadership. And the book was called, Leadership is Pain. Okay, I was feeling particularly upbeat on the day that I bought that book and read that book. But the guy gave this incredible um, uh, equation, uh, which is so helpful. And he basically said this, he said this, growth, let me get this right. I'm gonna get this right. I don't wanna get it wrong for you. Growth is equals change. How many would agree with that? We don't, we don't grow unless we change. Growth comes through change. But change always has an element of loss. There's always an element of loss. And when there's an element of loss, loss always has an element of pain. Therefore, therefore, growth equals pain. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? And basically, it made a whole load of sense to me to realize, why is it that I've experienced pain in my life? And yet that pain, when I look back, has often been the area where there's been the most growth in me. As a person, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a leader, because you cannot get growth without pain. And so in the book on leadership, he says, if you're not hurting, you're not leading. Because if you're not hurting, then actually there's no loss, there's no pain, there's no change, there's no growth. So God can use the sadness that you experience and he doesn't cause it and you don't want it. And he's not, I'm not saying he wants it, but he can use it to be redemptive in your life because he can bring growth out of the pain. And we'll talk about that in a moment. He can also redeem it in in our sadness. As we experience sadness, we are better placed to help others who also are experiencing sadness. The Bible says we can comfort others with the comfort we have received. When we've received something, we're much better placed to help others. And the final thing about God and sadness, God declares sadness will not last forever. There should be an amen there. That's good news, isn't it? Sadness will not last forever. And there's a verse in the Bible we're going to return to right at the end. And it says this in Psalm 30 verse 5. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the, in the morning. The message says the nights of crying your eyes out give ways to days of laughter. See, I want to show you this morning the connection between the yellow hat and the blue hat. Because if this is joy and this is sadness, the Bible says that weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And my belief is this, that it is impossible to fully experience joy without sadness. You cannot experience the heights of joy without sometimes experiencing the depths of sadness. And many of you know, I've just come back a week or so ago from America. I'll talk a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks. The only thing I want to mention about that is that uh, the first week I was there, I was in California. And i would never been to California before. And the weather was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I realized when I was there why there are so many homeless people in California. Because the weather is amazing and they come into these big cities looking for the good life. It doesn't work out well and they end up homeless but they end up sleeping everywhere because the weather is amazing. And so as I was getting up one morning and walking around the lake and the sun was out and it was 7 o'clock in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, but it was really warm and there were ice creams got around and all of this. And I walked around the lake and I thought to myself, do you know what? Would I really want to live in a country where it's sunny all the time? Would I really want to live in a country where there are palm trees and where there are beaches and where every single day I could eat outside? Would I really want to live in a country just like that? You bet I would. LAUGHTER <laughs> Absolutely I would. And that completely broke the uh, illustration I'm about to do. Uh, but, but actually, see, on a serious note, the reality is if life was just yellow, if life was just joy, if life was all that, we wouldn't experience things like compassion. We wouldn't experience things like comfort. We wouldn't experience heroism, you know, heroism when, when people actually dig really deep to help people. We wouldn't experience any of that because life would just be one color. But life isn't one color because God is so much bigger than that. And there is a connection between joy and sadness. And we'll come back to that at the end. So what about you and sadness? How, how, how does this work out with you and sadness? Whether you're at this end of the continuum or whether you're somewhere up here or whether you're somewhere in the middle, how does that work out? And what I want to do this morning is to use a story from the Old Testament. This is a beautiful story and a very powerful, descriptive story. And I'm going to read probably the longest chunk of scripture that I've ever read before on a Sunday morning. So if you can follow me, that would be great. The words will come up on there if you don't have a Bible yourself. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And it's the story of the prophet Samuel and how Samuel arrives on planet earth. And Samuel became the prophet that eventually anointed David to become king over Israel. But this is how Samuel came to be. And it says this in 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man From Ramiathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoam, the son of Elahai. And then there's the son of the son of the son of, and we'll leave all that. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. This was in the day when two wives was okay. It was legit. It was legal. All right. Let me just make that clear. This was a long time ago. Uh, Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Why are you sad? Is what she's saying, isn't it? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, in her sadness, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forgive your, uh, and for, sorry, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So out of a sadness, she's pouring out her heart to God. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Here is a classic triangle situation. We've got the husband, Elkanah. We've got wife number one, Hannah, and wife number two, Penina. And Hannah's name literally means grace. But she's barren. She can't have kids. And that's a big deal for any woman in any day, in any age, in any culture. But in this day and age, in this culture, it's especially a big deal. Because for them, uh, children was a sign of fruitfulness. It was also a sign of favor from God. And to be barren was seen as a judgment. It was like it carries a stigma with it. And what had happened to Hannah is that her womb had become a tomb. That place of death, that place of life had now become a place of death. And Hannah's sadness is understandable. She's got no kids. The stigma and the future and the meaning and the identity and the purpose of her life was all uh, connected to that whole issue. But you see, for our sadness, our tomb like experiences are a little broader than that. Maybe for some of you here today, your experience is very similar to Hannah's. Maybe you couldn't have kids. And so you identify with the story at the literal level. But maybe for you, your tomb-like experience, that place that was meant to be a place of life, but is now a place of death. Maybe it's because, maybe you don't have kids, but maybe you have kids who have difficulties. Or you have kids who are different. Or you have kids who've died. Or maybe for you, it's that actually you're not married. And you say, I really want my life to be this place of life-giving. And actually, maybe you feel that your singleness isn't that right now. So maybe you feel that that place of life has become a place of death, that your womb has become a tomb. Maybe you are married and maybe your marriage started out full of life, but now it doesn't feel like that. It almost feels like your marriage has moved down a continuum as well. Maybe it's just life, it's work, it's finance, it's health. The sadnesses that we pick up in life can at times feel like a tomb. But it's okay because Hannah has an emotionally intelligent husband like all you ladies have here this morning, or not, or not. And this is what he says in verse 10. He says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And there's actually no response, okay, from her. I can, I can imagine the response. Because basically she's saying, why would you want for anything, darling, when you've got me? I mean, when you've got this in front of you, why would you want for anything? Is exactly what, what, what he's saying. And she doesn't respond to that. But let me make some comments here about how do we respond to other people and their sadness. You you see, one of the big things here is that we don't sometimes know what to do or what to say when other people are sad. And especially when they head down this continuum and they end up in this area, we don't know what to do or to say. But can I just give you a few things here to think about? Firstly, acknowledge it. At least the husband acknowledged the sadness of his wife. He recognized that she looked sad. He recognized she wasn't eating. At least he acknowledged it. Yeah, he wasn't particularly emotionally intelligent by saying, why are you sad? You've got me. But at least he acknowledged it. And people who suffer this and people who struggle with this often will say to me, nobody acknowledges it. Uh, Nobody even identifies it. And that can be the most, one of the most difficult things about the whole experience is it's not acknowledged. And and I wonder why we don't acknowledge it. Maybe because we don't care. That may be true. Maybe it's because we're so self-obsessed with ourselves, you know, that we're not bothered about anyone else. Or maybe more so, it's that we don't know what to say. And because many of us are British, not all of us are, the British culture is, I don't want to make anybody more upset than they are now. Can I say to you, if you know anyone who's down this end of the continuum, nothing you can say is going to make them any more upset than they are right now. But one of the worst things you can do is to ignore it. But just to acknowledge it is incredibly life-giving and affirming. But then when we acknowledge, also then, secondly, we've got to resist the temptation to turn it all onto yourself. Because that's what people do, don't they? And so you say, how are you doing? And someone begins to say how they're doing and they talk about their sadness and their difficulty and you say, oh, that's really bad. That's just like what happened to me. Da, 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 da. And then it's all about you. And we do that so, so often. I will resist the temptation to attempt to perp them up a little bit. Chin up, have a cup of tea and everything will be all right. Or even worse, to give them some trite, superficial, kind of perky up, chin up kind of things. Even Bible verses, you know, that we give just because we want. We we actually want them to be happier because it makes us feel better. Because we don't want to feel the awkwardness of that situation. So that's what we try and do. To acknowledge it, resist, but then sit with them. Just sit there and listen for a moment empathize, hold on, be there, it makes a massive difference. Massive difference. You see, for this lady, to make it worse, she has wife number two rubbing her nose in it. She has wife number two, Panina, irritating her and reminding her of her tomb-like experience by just saying how many kids she's got. And actually, the name Panina literally means venomous. I don't know why the parents said, I name you venomous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Hannah means grace. Penina means venomous. But often there is someone or something in our life that makes our sadness even more acute. It almost highlights it. So I often thought in the Bible, you know, God gave promises to people. Often when, when there was an interaction, he gave them a promise. So to Noah, what was the promise that God gave to Noah? Never make it rain again. But, and he gave them a symbol, a rainbow. Fantastic. To Abraham, the symbol of the promise that he made was circumcision. What's up with that? The one guy gets a rainbow and the one guy gets circumcision. And then fast forward to the New Testament. Peter, okay, when Jesus is resurrected, Jesus comes to Peter and he gives him a promise of what the future is going to look like. And the future is basically going to be Peter. You're going to be led by other people and you're going to be put to death because you love me so much. Peter said, okay, what about John? And look John, and basically John's future is he's going to get to spend the rest of his days on a Mediterranean island. Doesn't seem fair to me. One guy gets a rainbow, one guy gets a very sharp knife, one guy gets to, to die for your faith, one guy gets to spend time in a Mediterranean island. There's always someone to remind you of your sadness. And I think every year as she travels up to Shiloh, making this 16-mile journey, Shiloh is this place where they go to thank God for his provision and his blessing in their lives. And every year she goes up barren. And it's like every year the effort of doing that would have been excruciating for her. And maybe for you this morning, there are those people or situations in your life like Panina that remind you of what's going on or not going on your situations. So if you're single, all your friends seem to be getting married. If you're childless, everyone you know seems to be having a baby. If your child is different or difficult, other kids seem to be amazing or perfect. The sadness continues. It persists. It underlines. It grows. It defines. It confines. It can become a tomb. But... I've got some great news for you this morning. God is a God of the reversal. Isn't that true? And so that wound that becomes a tomb is transformed. And so the tomb can become a womb. That place that has become a place of death can become a place of life. And God can do that. But you and I have to do something as well. And in the last five or six minutes I've got, I want to give you six things from this story that I think Hannah did that I think we also need to do. If we are going to engage with our sadness, if we're going to see God turn that tomb into a womb, we're going to need to do some things as well. Now, this is not six um, problem solving tips. Okay, this is not six easy ways out of depression. This is not six... Things that will lift the gloom of your life, and you'll be singing zippity doodah every day of your life. This is not what this is about, okay? Because life is much more complicated than that. In fact, I love this quote from a guy called Dan Allender. He said, We are not machines that can be repaired through a series of steps, we are relational beings transformed through the mystery of relationship. That's amazing. So, we're not machines that can be repaired through six easy steps, we are transformed through the mystery of relationship primarily with God, but also with one another. So here are the six things that I want to throw at you this morning or share with you. Number one, Hannah kept going to church. All the way through her sadness, she kept going to church. The Bible says year after year, but I want to suggest a better strategy is week after week. Because actually, by going to that place and gathering with other people, what she's doing is she's putting herself in a position where she can connect with other people and she can connect with God and she can bring God more and more into the sadness that she's experiencing. Last week, I was with some other minister friends and we were talking. And one of the guys said something interesting happening at our church. He said, we've got some people who aren't Christians and they seem to turn up at our church when they feel sad or when they feel a bit down. He said, actually, one's our local MP, so he turns up a lot of things. Uh, and, and, and another one is some business guys. And, he says, and they turn up, and they're not Christians, but they come when they're feeling sad and when they're feeling a bit low. It's like there's something here that they recognize lifts them up. And I went away, and I had a thought, why is it that so many Christians I know when they're feeling sad do just the opposite? Why is it that some non-Christians who don't know God... Come to that gathered experience because they recognize there's something there. And yet people who are Christians, when they're sad, what they often do is they back away. Now, I understand fully the, 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 the draw to back away. Because you, you don't want to go to a place where you are feeling sad and you think that everybody else in the room is feeling really happy. Am I right? You don't want to go to a place where you feel like you've got to talk to lots of people when you just want to be on your own under your duvet. I get that. But I also get this, that when you do that, you take yourself out of one of the things that will really help you come through that sadness. And do you know what? If the worst thing that's going to happen is that when you come, you get upset, so what? What? If you sit and you cry through the whole thing, it doesn't matter. But what you're doing is you're putting yourself in that position where worship, where the word, where the ministry, where encouragement from other people could help lift you, maybe lift you and carry you through that sadness. So she kept going to church. Secondly, she changed her posture. Verse nine says that after she finished eating, she stood up. She did something different. That's really important when you're in these moments of sadness you get locked into a, a mode of operating but she stood up she did something different she changed her posture maybe for you it's a different change maybe you need to sit down or kneel down or ask for help or push in rather than pull out or reach out rather than just draw in she changed her posture she did something different Number three, she held nothing back. Verse 10 uh, says that she poured out everything before God. You know, what? we cope with sadness, we often avoid it or we suppress it. But Hannah poured it all out to God. You know, I've been brought up in a Christian family. And so I know what that feels like. And sometimes many of you haven't. uh, But sometimes when you have been brought up as a Christian, you're brought up with these kind of views and ideas, not because your parents did it, but just because you picked it up. Almost like this thought that, if, if I was to say everything to God, that suddenly he go, like, oh, you really think that? You, do you know what I mean? As if like he doesn't know already. But the reality is, folks, there's nothing you can say to God that he doesn't already know. And there's nothing you can say to God that's going to make him go, oh. but when you pour it all out to him, there's something life-giving and cathartic in you and transformative in you as you pour it all out to God. And that's what she does. She holds nothing back. Then in verse 11, she invites God in. And it sounds like a dodgy deal here because she says, God, if you give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. And I understand that. We shouldn't probably do that. But here you've got to remember, she has nothing to bargain with, only what God could give her. And and as I was thinking about it, I really believe that God gave me something to share with some of you specifically this morning. And it's this. For some of you, you're at this end of the spectrum. So it's not depression, but actually you're sad about something right now. You're upset about something right now. But actually, you think like this, but what I'm sad about is too small to bother God with. But for some of you, you're at this end of the spectrum, maybe moving towards it, or maybe here, and you've been here for a long time, and for some of you, you've reached this conclusion that what is bothering you and what is causing all of this pain in you is too big to bother God with. So there's some of you here this morning, and you're saying, it's too small to bother God with, and some of you are saying, it's too big to bother God with, and I felt God say this, who are you to judge? Let me be the judge of that. But actually, because he is a good, good father, if you're a good, good father, yeah, using that quote out of that song, then actually nothing that happens in your kid's life is too small for you to be interested in. And nothing that happens in your kid's life is too big for you not to want to help. So I want to say to you this morning, if you, if what's bothering you and making you sad, you feel is too small, why don't you give it to God? Why don't you give it to God? And if what is bothering you and making you sad feels too big, why don't you give it to God? He is the best person in the universe to handle it. And then she didn't give up. She kept growing. She kept praying. She kept pouring it out. And then finally, number six, she worshipped God. Even though nothing apparently had changed, she worshipped God. In the sadness, she worshipped before the promise was realized, before God intervened. Something changed in her heart before something grew in her womb. And there's something amazing about worship. That's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to gather together, to worship corporately. And worship's not just what we do corporately, but it's so important because when we worship God in our sadness, something will change. It really will. We often want the change before we worship, but actually it's usually the other way around. When we worship, we worship our way to change. So, as we draw to a close, the connection between sadness and joy. Weeping may stay for the night But rejoicing comes in the morning. The nights of crying your eyes out give way to days of laughter. Let me just say a few words about the night. If you're experiencing, the the ancient Christians used to call it the dark night of the soul. When you've been at this end of the spectrum for quite a time. If you're suffering a night in any description in this dark. I want you to know a few things about the night. The night will not last forever. It won't. I've told this story before, and many of you will remember it, but some of you won't know. It's been a long time. But many years ago, a really good friend of mine, a pastor from Northern Ireland, his wife went into hospital um, to give birth to their second daughter. And there was a mistake made by one of the nurses, and the epidural was placed too high in the spine. And, uh, and Hannah was the name of the baby, actually, that was born. But Kerry, the mother, died during childbirth. And when I went over to visit my friend just after that and the funeral and all of that, uh, I stayed uh, uh, at Kerry's best friend's house, who was also a really good friend of ours. And she was a worship leader. And uh, on on a piano, she had a Bible open one day. And I I noticed the Bible was open to Psalm 30. And these verses were underlined. Weeping stays for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And in the 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 page by the side of it, uh, my friend had written this. Yeah, but it's a long night. And that's true, isn't it? We know that joy comes in the morning, but when you're in the night, it feels like a very, very long night. All I can say to you is that that night will eventually go one day. Whether it goes this side of heaven, eternity or not, I don't know. But eventually it will. And I actually think that for most of us, for most of us, it happens this side of eternity. But in some cases, in some certain circumstances, maybe it's the other side. But I do know that the night will not last forever. Secondly, you are not alone in the night. You are not alone in the night. God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. Thirdly, the night has a purpose. One day you'll see it. You won't see it now. For Hannah, she got the baby. You may not get the baby, okay, the specific thing you're asking for, but you will get joy. You will get a purpose. God will come through for you if you'll hold on. And the last thing is this. And in the night, if you're in the night, please reach for the light. Whenever you're in the night, reach for the light. And for me, light means other people. It means asking for help. It means community. It means worship. Ultimately, it means God. When you're in the night, ask for the light. I'm going to ask Gemma and uh, Ben to come back up. And we're going to do something a little different as we finish this morning. We're to, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And while we take communion, while the guys give the emblems out, Gemma is going to sing prophetically over you this morning an amazing song. And I really believe God's going to use this to speak into your eyes. But before we do that, I want to just ask that we pray just for a moment. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to change your posture. Hannah did that. Bible says that after she finished eating, she stood up. She said, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to change my posture. And I don't know what that means for you. Maybe for you, you're str- maybe you're not right down this end of the spectrum, but, but you know you're in a night situation. You're in a darkness situation, a sadness. There's a sadness in you right now. And, and actually, God is saying to you, change your posture. And I don't know what that means, but I would love us to pray for you this morning. So just before Gemma sings the song, I want to ask if all of us can just close our eyes for a moment. If there's any of you here this morning and you say, God, that's me. But in the night, you want to reach for the light. Then I'm going to ask you to do something really brave. I don't want to expose you or make it too vulnerable for you, but I'm going to ask that you stand up. I'm going to ask that. And as you stand, we're going to pray for you. You see, because I want you to know that you've made that commitment as well, that you've changed the posture. Because something happens in the heart of God. When you move towards him, God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God makes the invitation, but we have to make the step. So is there anyone else? Thank you so much. And what I'd love to do is to ask those people who are sat down. Could you just gather around those guys for a moment? We're not going to invade you. We're not going to ask you anything. We just want to pray for you. Okay, this is beautiful, holy moment. Father, we just come to you right now. And we say, Lord Jesus, would you just touch every single person who's standing up? And God, the night that they're in, God, we pray that they would know that they are not alone in the night. God, I pray for hope where hope has been extinguished because the night will not last forever. And God, I pray that at some point in the future, they'll look back and they will see you at work and they will know that you are a redemptive God. And what the enemy sometimes means for harm, you have an incredible way of turning it for good. So God, would you just encourage them, I pray. And Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you fill their lives with hope and bring light into their darkness, I pray. And Lord, that out of this sadness, they would experience a little touch of your joy in Jesus name Amen